Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where someone who might have Ebola might have once visited. So please, run into the streets screaming in terror. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. And you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio and at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. How's it going, everybody? And Mr. Justin Cheever. Hello. Uh, Dr. Professor Luke Galen is off. Um, coming up in today's show, we have an imaginative God Thinks Like You, a painfully pleasurable counter-apologetics, <laughs> the startling conclusion of the tale of the Celtic hero Cuhulin in polyatheism, and more, but first... Ebola is actually a crisis in parts of Africa. The WHO Who? is reporting that there are near 5,000 deaths related oh to gosh, Ebola yeah. at this time. Where? In Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, a handful in Nigeria, and um, uh, quite a few in Guinea. But uh, we've had – I saw an interesting statistic the other day on Facebook – more Americans have been married to Kim Kardashian than have died of <laughs> Ebola. Yeah. So um, yeah. the the panic here in the States is a little bit um, out of proportion. Almost just as bad as the hysteria about Ebola is the denial about Ebola too. I'm starting right. to see all these conspiracy theories coming out claiming – it's not a real thing or it's the Red Cross is giving people Ebola with their vaccines and that sort of yes, thing. Yes, yeah. There, there's a, a great website if you're into crazy where a guy blames the vaccines uh, for spreading Ebola. Mm -hmm. By the way, the Ebola vaccine, which will be ready next year, um, yeah. not so much spreading <laughs> Ebola just yet. Mm. Um, and uh, he has this – Long list of reasons why people want to spread Ebola from getting Nigerian oil to getting uh, Sierra Leone diamonds and so on and so forth. And then he ends this long rant. Um, his conclusion paragraph begins with, now, I'm personally no expert on Ebola. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that tells you all you need to know about yeah, uh, yeah. that and guy. I know that there was some uh, – I had heard – some news stories where when it first started erupting this this huge uh, mm -hmm. this issue in Africa, um, that there were a lot of concerns and kind of uh, these beliefs among the civilian population that that this that the medical camps were in large part making this worse because right. from their perspective. They're sending everyone to these medical camps and, and they're, they're not coming, coming out. back sick, yeah, or and, not coming out at all. Right. And so there's been a lot of misinformation, like, you know, based in that kind of uh, yeah, there, perception. There has been a lot of that. And in fact, the numbers are astonishing. This from a, a report from NPR. Before Ebola, 
97% of babies in the affected yeah, regions in Africa sad. were getting their routine vaccinations. 97%. That's great. Mm-hmm. I wish America was that high. Yes. I don't know exactly what we are. And I don't think we're that high. They've been fighting anti-vax conspiracies for decades. Yes. So that was that was the result of a very strong public health initiative yes. and education campaign. Mm. And it was it going – work to get that number that high. Great. 97% before the Ebola outbreak. Now – 27% of children are getting their routine vaccination. 70% down because of this paranoia yeah. about the conspiracy theories are directly That's to blame. Really they're, they're projecting thousands of childhood deaths yeah. from preventable illnesses over Not the next decade. Not just Ebola. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's the one more, danger. But more than right. Ebola will. They are yeah. having cases of measles, all of this stuff that is very easily preventable with routine vaccinations. Yeah. And um, It's just a general skepticism about the medical establishment. Yes, yeah, which is something that, that, that they combated for a long time yeah, in Africa right. and still do. And then you have the Catholic Church saying don't use condoms and all of that. So there is a yeah. lot of uh, misinformation out there. However, we are seeing some signs of progress in certain areas where um, people are starting to go back to getting the vaccinations and trusting their health workers. But overall, this is this yeah. is bad. Folks. It's tragic. I, I had a Facebook friend, one who is not as critical of a thinker as I wish she would be, Posted this conspiracy theory uh, with some sort of headline like, um, you know, see the truth for yourselves or something like that. And you just had to click on it because I, you wanted to see the I truth. I dutifully have been following that around. All my mm-hmm. Facebook friends who are posting it and I'm surprised how many there are. I have my like – my necessary rebuttal already prepared <laughs> and I, I link to articles, you know, debunking yeah. this stuff. And I encountered one commenter on there who just dismissed all of my articles as, oh, they're all in on the conspiracy. And I pointed out, well, that's how conspiracy theories work, right? You won't accept any disconfirming evidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every disconfirming evidence is actually used as more evidence for the conspiracy. And her response was interesting. She said, don't think we're in a debate here. This is being led by Satan. Oh, and <laughs> I did not I, see that coming. No, I am God's messenger. Oh, my God. And if you want to listen to the word of God coming through my mouth, then you can. If you want to deny it, then go ahead. But we're not actually getting into a debate right now. Wow. And I had to respond. Clearly, we are not. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, speaking of God's messengers, um, former guest on the show, Leo Igwe, has something to say to many of the uh, so-called healers in mm-hmm. Africa mm-hmm. who are suspiciously quiet now that they're actually needed. Right. Yeah. Um, he says, in part... Where are all the continent's miracle workers now that people desperately need help? Where are the anointed men and women of God now that governments urgently need to contain the spread of Ebola? Where are all the pastors and preachers who have built their religious and business empires marketing miracle cures, claims to gullible, ignorant, desperate folks in cities and villages across Africa over the years? Presumably they all have Ebola. You know, he goes on to say, do they just... They, Ebola is just one thing they can't <laughs> yeah. handle. Like they it's can the do one everything thing the supernatural else. cannot touch. Yeah, Ebola Very is immune to magic because there apparently. are many people, and this isn't just you know tribal African 
pardon the expression, witch doctor kind of thing. But he's talking about the Christian healers and the Muslim healers right. and, and all of these people who have invaded Africa. Capitalized on the mm-hmm. scientific, largely ignorance. And where are they now? He cites specifically, uh, Leo Igwe cites Duncan Williams, uh, Archbishop uh, is one of these great prophets out in Ghana, I believe, and claims that uh, God speaks to him. As far as Ebola goes, he has said, here, here's uh, his encounter with the Spirit of God. Quote, I was resting, and at 1 a.m., the Spirit of the Lord woke me up, and he said, Are you sleeping? And I said, yes, I'm sleeping, <laughs> which is a lie, obviously. This is the best story already. Uh-huh. And he, being God, said, wake up. So I did. And he said, you have to go into prayer because the Ebola virus is looking for a door to enter your country between October and November. First of all, how can anyone confirm – this is Igwe now – anyone confirm there was such an encounter? This is clearly a subjective experience that cannot be objectively authenticated. And what is, uh, what is special about this encounter? Does anyone require any spiritual experience to know that the Ebola virus could spread to Ghana if it were not contained by mm. the neighboring countries? Yeah. I mean, this is like, oh. It's a pretty safe claim. Yeah, we're in the crosshairs <laughs> here, and God says yes. But meanwhile, God does not offer to him a way to cure Ebola or tell him how to – that would be evidence that this man is on the level. Yeah, their, their silence is highly likely in yeah. the assumption that it's all bullshit. Right, right. Here's how you make the Ebola vaccine, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Archbishop. We've got it. We'll take it from here. But no such thing. So, um, I mean, it's, it's comical the way these so-called healers are reacting but tragic because people are actually dying and many of them trying to turn to these people that they've invested so much time, money, and uh, uh, faith into. Yeah, and, and as Igwe says, you know, they're turning to these kind of guys and um, not necessarily to the medical professionals who will help them get right. vaccinated. Hence and, the, the yeah. lowering vaccination rates and all yeah. of that stuff. It's, it's You could see why he's upset. Yes, yeah. very much he, so. He deals with that kind of stuff every day over there, and I'm sure this is just making his head spin. Mm-hmm. I guess we have other news related to our Leo Igwe interview as well. We interviewed Igwe about the phenomena of witchcraft superstition mm-hmm. and persecution, especially of children accused of witchcraft, yeah. which uh, – he warned us is not just an African phenomenon. No, and in fact, in the news, we see that it's happening in the UK of all places. Um, this is—I don't know about the rest of you, but this is not what I expected. I think the United States. I think Africa. Um, I don't think the UK. When I think witchcraft trials, now were this the Middle Ages? Sure, but um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Not the UK in. This decade. Yes. Um, I've seen Monty Python. I know. But uh, according to this article from uh, the BBC, which is, I I believe, a fairly legitimate news source, right? I mean, they're no uh, Daily Daily Mail. Mail, No, they're not as good as the Daily Mail. According to the BBC, the Metropolitan Police have received 27 allegations in the past year of witchcraft-related abuse. There's been a number of higher-profile cases in the last few years, including uh, the murder of a 15-year-old child. Um, He was tortured and drowned by his sister and her boyfriend on Christmas um, 2010. 
because they believed he was using witchcraft. And another, uh, Victoria Kleinby, aged eight, was beaten, burned with cigarettes, and forced to sleep in a bin liner. Bin, uh, as in a trash, trash, bag. trash bag. Oh. Yep, she had to sleep in a trash bag um, in a bathtub. She died uh, in February of 2000. Then there was Victoria Kleinby's great aunt was found guilty of, and her boyfriend were found guilty, guilty of murdering this girl because they believed she was possessed. And in that same year, a torso of a young boy was found floating in the Thames, believed that it may have been the victim of a ritual sacrifice. So these things have been going on for the last decade or so, and now we're seeing an uptick. Um, not huge, but uh, the numbers are going up each year, which is kind of the opposite of what, uh, what we'd hope for. Ignorance kills, I guess, is the message of our very depressing start to this episode. Yeah. Gosh, I wish we were talking about giving statues blowjobs and that sort of thing. We lost. That, did you see that, that we lost? Some yeah, listeners? we lost some listeners from that. We but, lost. Uh, I think we lost a listener. Uh, by the way, folks, the depressing stuff about Ebola and yeah. children being massacred and that sort of thing—that doesn't lose them. No, it's no, the, no, no, no. It's by the, the way, juvenile humor. If you stop listening to any podcast for any reason. Please feel free to email them and tell them exactly why you did that because they care. I, I'm glad. Uh, I, I'm glad. I want our exit interviews. I want to know why people stop listening to the show. Oh, God. Although did you see in the comments on our blog that uh, he posted uh, – explained to us why he stopped listening. Not that he was offended, but he was worried that people going through his iPod would hear it and be offended. Yeah. And someone else then donated $50 in his honor to the podcast. So <laughs> that is that is a net uh, win uh, for us. Our listeners are the best. I know. Uh, <laughs> to anyone who is offended by our saucy episode last time, I'm sorry if anyone was, was taken by surprise and was unduly offended. That wasn't our aim. But you know what? It's not like it's something we do a yeah. lot. I, it's just every I feel once in a while, bad. You get a I feel of bad jokes. for the families who listen to it together in the car, which we do have a few. I feel oh, bad yeah. because they were unprepared, but that's, yeah, that's virtually true. everybody else of adult age can handle it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another uh, another thing I want to add is is you know over the past several weeks we've had a a, a large influx of donations and yes, I just want to yeah, we just want to. Thanks. Tell you that we very obviously much. very much appreciate, appreciate that. It. That's a huge help. Yeah, the the costs of maintaining the podcast have gone up, and um, the donations have gone up as well, which so has made the anxiety go down. Yeah. So thank you guys. It's wonderful, and some people who are even signing up to do monthly payments, and that's yeah. uh, whoa, that's yeah, cool. It's very nice. So thank you to all of you who have donated, and uh, if. If you want to support the show, I don't know why we're doing this in the middle of the show, but it, <laughs> it happened. Uh, if you want to support the show and don't have any money, please just spread the word. Uh, put yeah. a comment on iTunes or on Stitcher. You know, link share to us in page. a blog post yep. or on Facebook. Absolutely, all makes of that a big stuff difference. Helps so that we can spread reason to the people, um, mm. which, as our stories so far have shown. We have a world in much need yeah. of, of and, and very often we get emails where uh, people start listening to the show simply because a friend of theirs posted yep. it and they were curious and they've gone through big changes because of it. Mm -hmm. So so those of you have, who have helped share the show, thank you for that as well. Now, we've been talking about a lot of suffering going on in the world. Ah, uh, if only 
there was someone who could make sense of all of this pain <laughs> and suffering in the world. I think it's time for some counter-apologetics. Oh, yeah. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. So a couple weeks ago, I discussed some of Paul Draper's work uh, regarding the fallacy of understating the evidence. And he's found flaws in many theistic arguments in that they uh, appeal to some general fact that seems very much more likely on theism than on naturalism. And so to that degree, it appears to be significant evidence for theism. But Draper, you know, showed that once we actually look at some of the more specific facts, it's not at all clear once you take in all the relevant data about that topic that these arguments favor theism over naturalism. I just wanted to say I found that to be a very helpful counter-apologetics in that it, it really creates a frame in which you can put a lot of these different arguments under. Yeah. When I first came across that, I was like, this is this is so applicable to so mm-hmm. many of the things that we're dealing with. We've um, tried to say the same thing a exactly. half a dozen times, <laughs> just never so succinctly and, and direct and to the point as Draper did there. Yeah. Now, one of Paul Draper's most uh, influential articles is his 1989 article, Pain and Pleasure, an Evidential Problem for Theists. We've discussed the problem of evil in its various forms on this show before. We've, I'm pretty sure we've talked about the logical problem of evil uh, very early on in the, in the life mm-hmm. of the show. We've discussed William Rowe's argument from evil, you know, the argument that skeptical theism plays so intimately into. But Paul Draper's version of this is, is slightly different, and it's, it's, it's different in some, I think, very important respects. I think it's a very uh, powerful tool in the counter-apologetic toolkit. So this is not just gratuitous suffering all over again. This Correct. is some other aspect. The skeptical theism objection actually is completely powerless against an argument like this. So this is a very meaty article, and I'm going to have to give it a very uh, superficial uh, walkthrough, but I'm going to try and make it absorbable. It might take a couple of listens, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, he's going to be comparing two hypotheses. And so on the one hand, you have theism, which is you know uh, just the core of theism, where you have a, an all-powerful, perfectly loving, and all-knowing being. He's not assuming any particular variety like Christianity Correct. or Islam so or a, like a general theism. Kind of. right. okay. And what's important uh, is that you know a lot of times people will say, okay, well that's you know that's all interesting and stuff that you're arguing against this vague theism, but you know this doesn't have any relevance to Christian theism. Mm-hmm. Oh but, no 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 no! But that's exactly <laughs> not true. Christian theism is going to be a particular version of general theism. Right. And it's going to be asserting more than general theism, which means that its intrinsic probability lowers. Yeah. So it's the problem, always easier to refute a specific understanding of God than a more general it, conception. It's very hard for most uh, apologists to offer strong arguments for the Christian God as opposed to just yeah. – mm-hmm. Which is why the best tend to only focus on a more general philosopher's exactly. God exactly. because it's safer for them to yeah. do so. The counter-apologists should be doing that as well because any argument that is a threat to general theism will also be a threat to specific versions of theism. The hypothesis he's going to be placing against this, uh, he calls the hypothesis of indifference. Neither the uh, nature of nor the condition of sentient beings on earth is the result of, of beneficent or malevolent actions performed by non-human persons. 
right? So this is kind of like naturalism, but yet it's not inconsistent with the existence of supernatural beings. So it's it's a much more, more humble conservative hypothesis. Than, yeah. Exactly. It's not saying that there are no supernatural beings. It's saying that if there are, they're irrelevant uh, when it comes to the well-being of conscious creatures. Now the observations Draper is looking at here is observations concerning the reports of humans and animals experiencing pleasure and experiencing pain. And so his central claim here is that the hypothesis of indifference explains the facts O, which I will be getting into what O actually is, uh, explains O much better than theism does. O? (laughs) And so the technical way uh, to to think about this is that the, the antecedent probability of O is much greater on the assumption that the hypothesis of indifference is true than on the assumption that theism is true. Now, what I mean by antecedent probability is simply the probability that you would have the observations being true completely uh, abstracting away from those observations. So if you take those away, you think, how likely is it the case that we would actually expect these to be true? Before we know anything else. Right, right. What are we thinking? And so... Another important thing about this argument is that it deals with epistemic probabilities rather than uh, statistical, logical, or physical probabilities. So epistemic probabilities, those are interesting because they're not going to be the same for everybody, right? Everybody is coming to the table with a different set of facts. And so epistemic probabilities can differ between different persons and within the same person at different moments in their life because not everybody has the same stock of knowledge that they do throughout their entire life. The argument uses the phrase biological goals, and this is kind of central to the argument, but this is not to be understood as a kind of conscious agent working towards some end, only as a kind of tendency intrinsic to some kind of uh, natural system. So think of biological goals, for example, as things like survival or reproduction, right? These are things that the organic system will tend to work toward. So back to O, right? O is the general observations, but there's three specific O's that are included within this broad O. O1, O2, and O3 are, you know, the conjunction of those three are identical to the initial O. And the first one, O1, is the observation that moral agents are experiencing pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically useful. O2 is that sentient beings that are not moral agents are experiencing pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically useful. And O3 is that sentient beings experiencing pain or pleasure that we do not know to be biologically useful. Now, logically, the probability of O on on a hypothesis is going to be equivalent to the probability of O1, O2, and O3 given that hypothesis, right? Because they're all just, they're all, we're talking about the logically identical here. You have to take them all together. But of course, this won't work when we want to assess epistemic probability of a hypothesis. It would be to ignore how these things relate to each other when it comes to background knowledge. So it gets a bit more complex. I'll just say the the formula here. So the probability of O on a hypothesis is going to be the probability of O1 on a hypothesis multiplied by the probability of O2 given a hypothesis in O1 multiplied by the probability of O3 given the hypothesis and O1 and O2. So 
That sounds very confusing, but – In other words, in plain English, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. we're just looking for the conjunction of all of those different facts together. And how they cumulatively right. build together. Yeah. yeah. We're not treating these as separate, entirely separate things we want to see. How do, how, what is the likelihood that all of these could be coexisting? Correct. And that requires extra math. Yeah. The way you can do it – so those three steps that I, I showed there, you want to show – okay, so remember I just I just talked about the probability of 1 on a hypothesis, right? So what, what Draper's project is is to say that once we replace hypothesis with theism or with the hypothesis of indifference, that the hypothesis of indifference will consistently better explain the O's in the formula better than theism on all three parts of that. Step one, show that the probability of O1 on indifference is greater than the probability of O1 on theism. Independent of the observations of O1, we know that humans are goal-directed organic systems aimed at their biological goals. So given that, if pain and pleasure exist, we'd expect on indifference that they would be similarly aimed. But pain and pleasure are importantly different than other other uh, biological ways to reach biological goals um, in that they have moral significance, right? So pain is bad, pleasure is good, and these strongly affect our well-being. So that obviously is going to play into it when it comes to theism, right, if you have a morally perfect being. On the hypothesis of indifference, given that pain and pleasure do exist, we don't really have any antecedent reason for thinking that the moral significance of pain and pleasure as opposed to other parts of the organic systems would need to be similarly aimed at biological goals as with other organic systems. Just doesn't matter. Right. It's just, yeah, it's, you know, the, the world is indifferent to our, our pain or our pleasure. As, as Paul Draper writes, quote, a biological explanation of pain and pleasure is just the sort of explanation that one would expect on the hypothesis of indifference. But notice when we go to the other side of that, of that equation on theism, our antecedent expectations look very different. Uh, if God exists, he's at least ultimately responsible for the existence of all pain and of all pleasure in the world. So there can be a few things that can be said about this. One, God being morally perfect has good reasons for ensuring pleasure totally independent of biological goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He might, of course, have reasons to tie some of them to biological goals. But, of course, that's completely unnecessary. He might have reasons to just bring about pleasure that is completely independent of biological goals. Just because it's good. Yeah, it's a good thing. So why would he not do that? I think you could just flip that, right? Yeah. He'd have reason to avoid suffering. Exactly, exactly. God would not permit pain unless he had a biological reason and a morally justifiable reason. Third, The omnipotence of God entails that he could create goal-directed systems like us without biologically useful pain or pleasure. In other words, God does not need biologically useful pain or pleasure to produce human goal-oriented systems like this. Let me cut in with a real-world example. I I worked in an adult foster care home for several years. We had a young woman who uh, she could not feel anything below her waist. Mm -hmm. She had the tendency then to – she could get injured – and wouldn't know that she was even injured. You know, she developed a sore, a sore one time and it went undetected for a couple of days because she was capable of showering herself and everything else. And right. uh, That's how Christopher Reeve died, actually. He got he, 
Christopher mm-hmm. Reeve was, you know, was uh, quadriplegic at the end of his life, and he got bed sores yeah. and didn't know it because he didn't move and he couldn't feel anything. Yeah, yeah. and so it can be a very serious thing. We had to, uh, you know, we had to monitor her a lot because you know she couldn't she couldn't do that herself. Uh, right. She was even more prone to taking risks too because Ugh. you know she was, doesn't hurt. She felt invincible. Yeah, her mm-hmm. she getting around in her wheelchair was like a roller derby sometimes because <laughs> she had a great time doing it. And yeah. if she slammed her leg into a banister or something, it didn't matter to her. Right. Yeah. Now we could say, all right, well, that's a good reason why we need pain to survive. Right, <laughs> you know, right. is to avoid those types of things. Right. But God could just implant an alert system. It wouldn't have to be in the form of ow, right. suffering and misery. It could be some sort like of those cars with the the things that alert you when you're yeah, the fancy cars that alert yeah. you when you're going to back into something. It doesn't have to hurt yeah. the car for the car to go. Oh, hey, stop! Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even an instinct could be triggered. Yep. A protective instinct without the accompanying physical sensation of torment. And so if it turns out, contrary to what we actually see, that pain and pleasure were not aimed at biological goals, then that would be unsurprising on theism, right? However, we know that they do contribute to biological goals despite their huge moral significance. So that seems pretty awkward on theism. And so because of that, the probability of this observation, O1, on indifference is is uh, more likely than the prob- than the probability of O one on theism. Now, step two, O O, as we'll be calling it. <laughs> step two, uh, Draper wants to show that the probability of O two on indifference and O one is greater than the probability of O two on theism and and O one. Now, O two, if you recall, is that sentient beings that are not moral agents are experiencing pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically useful. On the hypothesis of indifference, biologically, we know that there's no significant difference between sentient beings who are moral agents and sentient beings that are not moral agents, right? There's really not much different biologically going on there. And because O1 has already pointed out that moral agents experience biologically useful pain and pleasure, it's antecedently likely that on indifference and O1, that these two categories of sentient beings, are sim- that, that they would be similar in that respect, right? That's, that's likely. But on theism, you know, can we not just also use the same reasoning and say, well, you know, we could argue that, you know, sentient beings that are not moral agents would be just as likely to experience pain and pleasure on theism? Well, no, not really, because remember, if, if theism is true, then God permits the pain observed in O1 because it plays an important role, an important moral role, right? But if these are not moral agents, that line of thinking isn't available to them anymore. So we're talking about animals. Or uh, small children. Okay. That are not moral agents. That don't have a sense of right and wrong. Yeah, or that can't make morally interesting decisions. You can't bring in some sort of soul creation theodicy like mm-hmm. we are becoming better individuals in the long run because of this or we appreciate mm-hmm. pleasure more it just doesn't that doesn't have any impact right i guess they would have to give us some sort of a priori reason why beings that are not moral agents why their suffering is completely irrelevant mm-hmm. for that yeah. to not yeah. be a moral challenge and i i can't see why how yeah, you could no, make that yeah. statement <laughs> and so again you know this shows that the probability of o2 on the hypothesis of indifference plus O1 
is greater than the probability of O2 on the hypothesis of theism and O1. Now, step three, Draper wants to show that the probability of O3, given indifference plus O1 and O2, is greater than the probability of O3, given theism and O1 and O2. If you recall, the third O, O3, uh, is that sentient beings experiencing planar pleasure that we do not know is biologically useful. Pain and pleasure that we do not know to be biologically useful includes some pain and pleasure that we know to be biologically gratuitous. Another uh, thing that this would include is pain and pleasure not known to be useful, but also not known to be gratuitous. Multiple orgasms. No? That's probably useful on some level. That's, yeah, that's, that builds character. It sucks. <laughs> it builds character. <laughs> I was thinking more yeah. that it sucks up sperm. That actually the, is, but, uh, that is one but, theory, yeah, actually. Uh, who knows? Uh, on theism, of course, we have much stronger reasons to expect sentient beings to be happy. On theism, in conjunction with O1 and O2, than we do on indifference in conjunction with 1 and 2. But, of course, that's exactly why O3 is so surprising, right? Many humans and animals experience prolonged and intense suffering. They rarely thrive, and they are very far from happy. Uh, As Draper notes, quote, We have more reason on theism O1 and O2 than on difference O1 and O2 to to expect to discover a close connection between certain moral goods like justice and virtue and biologically gratuitous pain and pleasure. For example, um, an instance of pleasure that doesn't really seem to be connected with uh, biological goals, we would expect it to be very strongly connected with uh, strong moral goals, but mm. that's not really sure. what we see. Right. Um, and the same is true for you know the other way around, of course. On indifference, antecedently, we have much more reason to expect that the role played by pain and pleasure to be purely biological. On this hypothesis, biologically gratuitous pain and pleasure are just accidental results of the natural system, right? Nature doesn't care to fine-tune the moral relevance of organic systems in this way. That's that's essentially the argument that he's making here. It's a, you know, it's a pretty complex argument, but I think, you know, in each step along the way, it, it just, it makes the gap between the observations on theism and the observations on indifference larger and larger. It's a very strong argument, I think. Part of his paper, he goes into the relevance of theodicies, right? So this this conclusion here is independent of potential theodicy explanations. Theodicies, you know, as as our listeners are going to be aware, are certain explanations, right? So they're gonna they're gonna be positing certain claims about theism that in in an attempt to raise the probability of the observations on theism, yeah, to kind of close against that a, gap against a. A right. problem of evil style so to, argument. To yeah. weaken the strength of the argument. So free will, we're used to that one. The right. free will theodicy, soul creation, which deals with character, skeptical theism, which is basically a cop-out and just says, <laughs> well, God might have a reason. Yeah. Right. That sort of thing. Or, or a theodicy you don't see as much, uh, but Gordon Graham from the UK defends is the uh, the Satan theodicy, basically. <laughs> we we have demons and Satan, and yeah. they, they are responsible for all this stuff. Yeah. So I want to quick uh, make a few comments about how to assess theodicies. What's interesting about the, the way that Draper suggests we do this is that you treat theodicies 
as auxiliary hypotheses, yeah. as add-ons to the core hypothesis mm. of theism. Now, once you do that, you have to ask yourself, well, uh, are there any antecedent reasons to think that this is likely to be the case? You know, yeah. rather than just positing your favorite holy book, yeah. right? What's more likely that this and that this auxiliary given theism is true, or do we have just as much antecedent expectation to expect it to be false? Right? Mm, if there's yeah. not significant reason, significant antecedent reason to expect it to be true, all you're doing is positing a logically coherent scenario, which of course does nothing to evidential arguments. If you give yourself free license to do that. You could make a sound argument out of just about anything right, right. with enough auxiliary hypotheses. Exactly. Yeah, ignoring the fact that you're being completely promiscuous with your – I mean that's, <laughs> that's kind of the process that guides science, right? Contra pauper, the, the truth is people use auxiliary hypotheses and fudge factors all mm. the time in science. But they are seen as a kind of temporary embarrassing thing, you know, yeah. and, uh, and we hope – that as we come to learn more, we verify the truth of those right. hypotheses. And if, we try to make them independently yeah. testable. Yes. Right. And if they don't ever reach that level and they are not as helpful as other theories, we abandon them eventually, at least ideally hmm. we do. And so, for example, like the skeptical theism mm-hmm. auxiliary hypothesis, right? If we're going to treat this as a theodicy, then the question we need to ask ourselves is, is there any antecedent reason – for expecting skeptical theism of the kind that would need to undermine this argument, is there any reason to expect that? Remember, the argument, all it's doing is it's comparing the explanatory power of these two rival hypotheses. So the kind of skeptical theism one would need to uh, be of any significance to this argument would be a skeptical theism that posits not only is it the case that we don't understand God's reasons, but we can't even compare the explanatory power of theism to rival hypotheses, hmm. right? Like how could you possibly bring about an antecedent reason for thinking that to be true? Yeah. So if they win, they lose because the <laughs> the entire presumption of this – or the entire reason why we oh, entered right. into this argument right, is yeah. because we assume, we assume these kind of arguments will tell us something about God. So yeah. So essentially what we're saying is that – the reason the skeptical theism doesn't work on this is because antecedently there's no more reason to expect skeptical theism to be true on the core hypothesis of theism than to expect it to be false on the core hypothesis of theism. So the two reasons, you know, you might say, well, it's possible God has, you know, unknown reasons to allow this evil. Well, of course, but it's also possible that God has unknown reasons, further unknown reasons to want to prevent it, mm. right? So yeah. those reasons yeah. cancel mm-hmm. out and you're left with your theodicy doing no work whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. an interesting – Both um, sides – I like that last point and maybe it deserves a bit of time lingering on it. The, yeah. the idea that if they're going to make this into a what-if game, that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. It's not just the theist that's entitled to make what-if claims about right. God. We could easily propose our own. And unless there really is some sort of reason to accept one of those hypotheticals exactly. yeah. over the other, then what if is not enough? And it can't be stressed enough that the reasons need to, needed to justify to parse those two competing what ifs, mm-hmm. they need to be antecedent to the core hypothesis of theism. They can't be just because you have a favorite passage in a holy book or something. Right. Um, because Either that or that we're begging does nothing the question. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're just assuming your theology. But yeah, so that's the argument and that's uh, one of my 
most favorite papers right now. It's a really <laughs> <laughs> so. I brought this show and tell a reasonable amount <laughs> now. My favorite paper by Paul Draper. Um, what's What's pretty cool though is if anybody's interested in this, I'm pretty sure that if you Google. And you type in PDF. It, it, the PDF is available online. So oh, cool. If anybody wants to look for it. Nice. Oh, well, if that's the case, we'll have a link to it on our blog. Yep. And at this point, now we play the Warren's Yvonne song, The Vast Indifference of Heaven. Because I could <laughs> not get that out of my head the whole time you were talking. I've never heard that song, it's but I great, love the title. It's one of my favorites. I love Warren's Yvonne, though. Uh, let's turn now to some God Things Like You, shall we? Yeah. I'm going to share an article that is not my favorite, (laughs) but it is making the rounds, and I think our listeners might be interested. Have you ever seen a movie or book Mm -hmm. that the characters to you were so compelling that you almost felt like they were real people. Like when something bad happened to them, you legitimately felt pain for yes. them, or all the time, or seething actually. hatred. David Bowie's or character like in that. the labyrinth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On Netflix right now, I've been watching um, Rectify. I don't know if you guys have seen, seen that. that. No. It's like Orange is the New Black meets True Detective with none of the fun. Oh, <laughs> this guy gets back from uh, gets out of prison. He's not really exonerated, but his uh, murder charges are dismissed because DNA evidence shows there's none. And he's turned out to be a very thoughtful individual while in prison. He's he's relied on meditation and reading the classics to uh, to help him survive in there. So you meet this character, Daniel, as this very thoughtful person as he's exploring the world again outside of isolation. He's been in the hole his entire 20 years in there or whatever it is. It already sounds depressing. Like it, I, I can yeah, but I still want to watch it. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's so slow-paced. Like a lot of the scenes are just the character sitting in his bedroom watching dust float around in a sunbeam. But those are the types of things to him that are huge sensory experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very hard not to form a close bond with the character. So it's the second – at the end of the second season, they kind of set it up where it's looking very likely that they're going to send him right back to prison. And my wife and I talked about it. We're like, we're not going to watch season three. We care too much about this Daniel character. That's breaking my heart. (laughs) We we can't watch this show because we're so attached to the guy. Like I think about this in the morning when I get up. Just make up your own ending and and he lived happily ever after. Because I'm pretty sure this show is so realistic that I'm pretty (laughs) sure it it won't end well. Well, yeah, recidivism rates Uh, being what they are seems likely. I feel like, Jeremy, you should have a, um, my favorite show segment on this show. <laughs> Next week, BoJack Horseman. <laughs> well, that's all I had for God Things Like You today. So I hope, um, that, hope that got you thinking. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, this segment brought to you by Netflix. <laughs> believe it or not, in the 17th and 18th centuries, philosophers were very curious about this phenomenon. The Enlightenment philosophers tended to be empiricists and they were very curious about how – Art in particular can sometimes generate factual judgments for us or very strong emotional feelings even though they are complete works of imagination so we're or having fiction. real experiences yeah. derived from fake mm-hmm. things. 
they felt that if we could unravel the mysteries of how this happened, we might have a better idea of what our psychological faculties are really grounded in. Mm-hmm. And so this experience I'm relating uh, that I think we've all had is sometimes called the paradox of fiction. Premise one, to fear for someone, we must believe they are actually in danger. Somebody can't say pretend your wife is going to get in a car accident and me get all that concerned and start dialing. I, I need to think right. that it's real. Premise two, we do not believe the dangers described in fictions are real. Of course yeah. not. Right. Premise three, but we fear for characters in fictions who are in danger. Or we could substitute any other emotional thing sure. into those right. premises. But the idea is all three of those premises appear to be true. But the conjunction of all three cannot possibly be true. Mm-hmm. It's a paradox. How does this happen? It's it's deeper than just the emotions we feel for characters. It's the fact that almost all of our normal cognitive inferences we bring to everyday life mm-hmm. get rolled into this. Do you think this accounts for the popularity of so-called reality TV? There's nothing really – real about yeah. so-called reality show. but you have that less distance of fiction you can pretend oh this is they're playing themselves mm-hmm. essentially yeah I, so I, I feel more investment i feel more fear more i wonder happiness. yeah i, I wonder there's it, absolutely it also, nothing contrived in right in uh, See, survivor but, and, and it's weird because i feel less for people on those shows I than know. i do for like on breaking I bad tend to you hate know those individuals. Well, people have tried to say this this also supplies some evidence for why realism is so compelling in mm-hmm. literature and why fantasy is more compelling if it's the kind that if say Rushdie or yeah. Borges writes where it's where the fantasy is integrated into that world like as Game if it were real. Yeah. <laughs> I think there might be some something yeah. to say for that. Typically in cognitive science and in aesthetics, the way to answer this has been to show that our our brain pretty much uses the same systems for imagination that it does for reality. Hmm. A lot of the things I'll be quoting here come from the Oxford Handbook of Aesthetics. Uh, so grab your copies at home. Folks, yeah. <laughs> pull uh, along. Uh, Page 72. I'm sorry. I can't provide better citations than that <laughs> at the moment. But P- PET scans have revealed that the brain reuses the exact same visual systems mm. when it's constructing imaginative mental imagery. Mm. To a PET scan, seeing something and imagining it doesn't look all that different. So like a Humean gold mountain – you yeah, take the yes. concepts that you do experience in real life and you place them together to form a fictional idea. Was that Hume or Locke? Pretty sure that was Hume. Okay. Unless uh, it was – I don't know. I, I don't think it matters though. <laughs> exact, <laughs> right. Exactly like that. To make it even more weird, you can take subjects in a lab and show them black and white horizontal line, you know, several in a row and ask them to walk back. How many paces back does it take before those lines start to blur and you can't see the – partitions. Let's just say it's 30 paces. Well, when you take a subject and imaginatively ask them, close your eyes and imagine you're looking at this now Mm -hmm. and you're walking backwards, just count how many paces before you can't see it, they say the same result. Wow. And even stranger than that, certain visual phenomena that most people don't know about and could in no way predict have the same result. You take those horizontal lines, you make them diagonal all of a sudden, your visual system is better at differentiating that. So it's going to take five or ten more paces before you can't see it. Mm. And imaginatively, the exact same thing happens again. 
In other words, you seem to be simulating your imaginary scenarios based on the exact same physics and intuitions that you do in the rest of the system. And they found some really cool interactions with fictional narratives that go along this line. For example, let's say you're reading a story and you read this sentence. Bill was in the living room reading the evening paper. Then you give one half of your subjects the following sentence. Before Bill had finished the paper, John came into the room. Then you give the other subjects this sentence. Before Bill had finished the paper, John went into the room instead of came into the room. Subjects actually take longer to read sentence B. If you measure their process time, it takes a little extra time for them to get through that. Why would that require extra processing? Well, when you start asking other questions of a similar sort, it comes out that even when you're not trying to form images of what you're reading, Mm -hmm. your brain is creating a model of that environment. Mm -hmm. When John comes into the room, you're already situated in the room room with Bill. Whereas if he went into the room, we're establishing that he's somewhere else. You've got to create a new... And that's that's even when the subjects say, I haven't been visualizing this, Mm -hmm. this is just me reading. They do this with other items, like how quickly can you recall the, the various different items that were in the room that were mentioned, and they all follow the same processing rule. I, I really like that finding too because you know some of these philosophers said, well, maybe we care about fiction because we imagine we're in the fiction. Mm-hmm. That seemed like such a simplistic way to think about it and right. doesn't conform with personal experience that often. But indeed, that seems to be what happens. And we make all sorts of other inferences too. Your mind doesn't take very long to process that the character wakes up in Chicago – and goes to bed in, say, Hong Kong. We just know, we make the inference, he must have taken a plane. But if we're in a different historical era and the same thing happens, people do note it. Their brain takes more time to process it. They seem more puzzled, meaning they're importing all their ordinary inferences. Mm -hmm. So the idea, uh, I guess, of cognitive science and aesthetic philosophy, how to resolve this paradox of fiction is that we're very robustly simulating worlds in our minds. And there's just at least one final stage between a factual belief and something we've imagined that is different. That is, we give our allegiance to the factual belief. We, we know in the end that these things aren't real, with imaginations, of course. And then with real events, we, we think they are. There's just that somehow that truth status I guess you could say, of the belief is different. So wait, Jamie, when do you get the part where you just say that God is like a make-believe fairy tale? Yeah. When's that part coming? Well, <laughs> that's, that's kind of coming next. So um, maybe you've seen the study that's been going around. It was on NPR uh, last week, and I'm starting to see it on atheist blogs. We had somebody post it on oh, our I Facebook page. About. Religious beliefs are not factual beliefs is the name of the title. And you can imagine how people on our side would love a headline like that, right? Someone messaged me about that and asked me about it, and I because I hadn't read it and it seemed pretty like it seemed too good to be true. I'm like, yeah, I'm not right. going to comment on that, yeah. yeah, because it's almost certain that uh, it's really oversimplified. Or the author of the study actually was inspired by that paradox of fiction. Okay, and his his basic idea is psychology and epistemology have been treating belief as if it's a single thing. And he is proposing, actually, that 
Religious beliefs, they are a completely different, separate and distinct cognitive attitude than the ones we use when forming factual beliefs. And he thinks they're more similar to uh, things like imagining or hypothesis formation mm -hmm. or accepting something uh, for the sake of debate. Religious beliefs are using more of those cognitive me mechanisms than the ones we use for everyday factual processing. He makes his case this way. Factual beliefs have these three characteristics that imaginings or religious credence as he calls it do not. One, they are practical setting independent. It really doesn't matter what the setting is. Your factual beliefs will always be operating in the background. Two, that they cognitively govern other attitudes. So they kind of have a uh, – I guess you could say a privilege status in the brain. And that three, they are evidentially vulnerable. You give somebody counter evidence, you quite yeah. quickly extinguish the old belief and that can even be a rather automatic thing. Sure. He feels that religious beliefs do not have any of these three characteristics and in fact, religious beliefs on top of that have a whole other suite of characteristics that aren't true of factual beliefs. So is he saying that this is a – uh, this tends to be the case, that they tend to not be like that? Or is he saying just as a matter of principle, religious you know, beliefs are fundamentally well, different? You'd have to read the paper and form your own judgment. But while while he does occasionally admit some gray area here, mm -hmm. he at the same time in his formulation of his theory presents it as pretty cut and dry. Oh, okay. Though he'll admit occasionally there are areas where there's a tiny bit of overlap. Uh, but he feels that that overlap is not really a threat to his theory because it's it, – they are rare, exceptional circumstances. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. I, I think after having read through this thing in way more detail than I cared to, <laughs> um, I this feel – what you always do. <laughs> yeah. I feel there's some element of truth in what he's saying here. It's just to me – it's one of those cases where your evidence doesn't quite suggest your theory. Mm -hmm. And the theory itself is so – it's supposed to be so sweeping and so revolutionary that I'm, I'm afraid – I'm afraid people will in our camp might take it more seriously than they should. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to share his point of view, hopefully as open-minded as I can while also injecting some skepticism into it. Starting with the basics, the idea that factual beliefs are practical setting independent. He has a kind of cute – example to illustrate this. Have a kid playing like they're at a pretend tea party, right? There are actually studies like this where they're making little Play-Doh cookies and stuff and pretending to eat the cookies and all that. The experimenter suddenly eats one of the Play-Doh cookies. It's mm -hmm. non-toxic. It's fine. Yeah, you'll okay. live. Yeah. You'll live. You'll crap all sorts of crazy yeah, it's colors, but totally worth it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's half the fun. You should try. <laughs> Can you squeeze out little star shapes and stuff? Oh, Don't well, depending on the shape of your rectum. <laughs> we did it again. Of course, the children know what's going on. The factual beliefs have always been going on underneath this play context, okay, yeah. right? They're not context dependent, so. In order to do the play, they have to actually utilize all of their factual sets of beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's just their playtime scenarios like they'll ask the kid, oh, we spilled some of that tea. Where do they mop up the invisible pretend tea? Well, they mop up below the, uh, where the teapot. Right, yeah, exactly where, where their intuitive physics say the spill should be. Mm -hmm. 
And as soon as they leave the context of their imaginary scenario, all of that – all of those frames drop. It right. goes away. I um, see this every day. I can vouch for this. You see that factual beliefs are always running in the background when imaginings are context specific. Mm-hmm. You know, related to that is his second point, factual beliefs have cognitive governance. And what he means by that is if you're going to draw inference from one set of beliefs to another, you're only going to do it from factual imaginative. He gives a little thought experiment to illustrate this. Somebody tells you to imagine Michelangelo's David falls off a boat into the water. Cowabunga. Different Michelangelo, but you get the idea. <laughs> okay. Damn it, Dave. <laughs> By the way, check out the epic rap battle between the Ninja Turtles and oh, the, and the uh, Art Renaissance, Renaissance painters. painters. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty kick-ass. So you're imagining this falls off the boat. What happens next? It, well, your intuitive physics just goes yeah, and it creates sinks. the story. Right, right. Because you know you have that factual belief that that statue is made out of marble mm-hmm. and you know that marble sinks in water. And so he says, you know, here's your inferred imagining. Now mm-hmm. you're picturing it sinking. He's, he points out it doesn't go the other way around. You don't hear that Michelangelo's David is made out of marble and it sinks in water. Now imagine – Michelangelo's David falling off the pier. Right. And you suddenly go, oh my gosh, it's sinking. And you call up the museum and everything else. <laughs> we don't do that. And it's a good <laughs> thing that our brains structure have that kind of governance right. with the factual stuff taking priority over the imagined. <laughs> so he says, you know, the intuitions don't run the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one, of course, factual beliefs are evidentially vulnerable. And the point is this is kind of quick and kind of automatic. OK, you think your cat's outside but then you hear it meowing in you know, the next room. Right. You make the conclusion yeah. and you extinguish immediately that false belief. It right. doesn't persist. You're not like, how is the cat here? Yeah. He's outside. Oh, my god. Was that acid I just Schrodinger's cat. Oh, my god. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He's outside and inside. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are all very useful categories. Yeah. Then here's his case that religious beliefs are not like that. Sure. Which is the part where I'm I'm a little more critical. I mean, off the cuff, the third category seems to be the case with probably the vast majority of religious belief. Just because I think that religious people that religious belief is is held for uh, n- non evidentiary reasons for the most yeah. part, but that is of course not the case with everybody. Which one of us wouldn't say that religious reasoning seems to be pretty immune <laughs> well, yeah. to evidence? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, right. But I, 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 I but, would say that I do think there are some religious believers that do, um, but to say that are is, at least yeah. sensitive to it. To say that this is rule governed by a cognitive process in the mind, I think, is a yeah. is a stronger claim than just you know. Wow, there's a lot of dissonance that they can handle (laughs) in order to maintain their belief. Uh, Religious credence is practical setting dependent. This is where it starts bothering me. He doesn't use a lot of evidence and when he does use evidence, it tends to be like really exotic stuff from anthropologists in the third world studying preliterate cultures, which – those studies tend to be plagued by language barriers, yep. lack mm. of cultural, cultural understanding. Barriers, yeah. And yeah. so he talks about this study as Tutsi and Harris in 2008 with the Viso people. I think we've mentioned this on the show before. Anthropologists noticed that when they talked, when they asked questions about a dead ancestor in a ceremonial setting such as like during a burial or something, mm-hmm. asking them questions. Can the dead, the deceased ancestor see? Can they think? Do they feel emotions right now? In the 
ritual context, the people would affirm all those things were true. But when they started in a more naturalistic setting, uh-huh. when they started asking questions about the corpse, can it see, can it think, everybody was like, of course not, and started treating it naturalistically. Mm. And so he's saying this is clearly the case that religious – the religiosity is turned off once it's outside of its ritual context. Yeah. And now people are thinking I, just their fact-based modes of thinking, which says the body is I don't, is dead. Yeah, by that because uh, yeah. I mean you're talking about the body as opposed to in that same context. If you had said, "Do you believe their spirit is watching?" Exactly. You, yeah. They, yeah. I, they would still answer in the affirmative. I suspect. Yeah, that's what I'm suspecting exactly. too. Yeah. Uh, whereas he's treating it as like it just goes offline. Look, if you believe the spirit is distanced from the body after death, the, there's the no contradiction is, implied right. by holding the those two attitudes. Just the exactly, thing exactly. And not the yeah. So if we're going to make a huge claim, I want to see better evidence than that. He does use a few more examples, but they're all of that kind mm-hmm. that you could you could imagine a different way to explain the data. But he's saying here, it's silly to see this as simple belief. I'm in a religious ritual so the ancestor can see me and then I have a simple belief. I'm in a naturalistic setting so the ancestor is a lifeless corpse. What's easier to see this is as a religious credence from one system overlapping a factual belief from the other. I'm still not sure that's the case. I would be fascinated if if you could ask this question of the ancient Egyptians who believed that the body was an essential part of the afterlife as well, hence the mummification. Would they answer – Differently, because they prepare yeah. the body so that the spirit can keep using the body. Yeah, that would be I interesting. That, that would be interesting. Yeah. Fortunately, they're not around, so yeah. it makes it tough. It, it's even less plausible to me when he brings this into the realm of, say, a professor who who's a creationist but a geologist at the same time. Mm-hmm. He he wants us to think the same thing. He wants us to think that they're not just compartmentalizing or. Publishing what they know will get published, <laughs> you know, which is what in fact a lot of these people do. They flat out say, "Hey, look, the paradigms of science ask for one thing, and so I do my research in that in that paradigm, but I happen to believe something else." Mm. He seems to think of it as a matter where they just kind of switch off their religious belief in the laboratory setting mm. and start thinking factually, and I, I find that kind of preposterous. It's a very seductive way to think about it. Mm-hmm. That you know, oh, it, yes, they're just switching it on and off, but I don't think it actually is that cut and dry. He also says religious credence lacks this general cognitive governance that we talked about before. Uh, The inferences don't go – they only go one way from factual to imaginary. Mm -hmm. He he talks about a study where a a series of little stories uh, about how God helped different people was given. And even though by a large margin all the subjects thought of God as being omnipresent everywhere at once, not a single one of the subjects – when they were asked to reconstruct the timeline of events and sequence it, none of them said that all these healings could be happening simultaneously. They had to construct a – this was actually from Barrett, uh, who we've talked oh, okay. about on the show before, that they had to reconstruct a scenario in a timeline fashion. Mm-hmm. There's not these simultaneous things going on. But still, the task required them to imagine. And so right. if we're already using our inference systems for imagining, <laughs> right – wouldn't that be the imagery that pops into your head 
you know, we don't imagine square circles or other things too. So the same being being in two places at once, mm-hmm. I wouldn't expect anybody to imagine that. Right. Does that mean that they are using an entirely different cognitive system or that no. none of their religious imaginings of the world ever bleed into their factual thoughts yeah. about the world? I, I don't find that very likely. Yeah, I mean I think clearly that's just false because there are religious beliefs such as moral beliefs that do affect the way people vote and affect the way people treat other people. Mm-hmm. Is that not obvious? Yes. Yeah. Right. Maybe in my in my strong. I think him a I bit? think since he's usually talking about factual beliefs, he usually has facts more in the mundane sphere of things, like what's in my cupboard, you know the Holy Spirit. Uh, okay. You know, which cities are north of Chicago mm-hmm. versus south. I think he would ex- I think he would want us to see that kind of level, but yeah, I don't know. I could think of all sorts of we've talked about just world belief on this show. That was one of the things that popped into my head. Oh yeah. And that's where somebody rather unconsciously and directly forms a factual opinion about the guilt or innocence yep. of a because person of because of the, a weird metaphysical yep. view that is one of their religious credences, he would say. And we also talked about people with divine command theory, how they you know, they would how those that's not just an abstract moral theory. It mm-hmm. it, it does come down to how they judge moral situations in a very severely deontological right. All of Luke's research on these uh, charitable games yeah. has people changing their inference about the uh, the morality of the person or the, the T-shirt study. Oh, right. Nobody was even given a factual belief that I was an atheist versus a Christian. But by subtle cues, um, the people had the most pronounced bias were those who had religious viewpoints, right. which strongly suggests that their perception of factual matters – Does bleed into the real uh, world. Yeah, was being fed in initially by imaginative ones. Yeah. I find it funny that he surveys so much research but doesn't ever mention these. Hmm. Final one, religious credences lack evidential vulnerability. This one again, really bad example I thought. He compared the Y2K – paranoia at the change of the millennium every you know can we even remember this but yeah people were freaked out that all the computers were going to shut down i was super freaked out were I, you? I demanded my mom and dad take all their money out of the bank <laughs> I, I i remember saying that i remember my dad was forming plans to build a, a power to put a propane tank under our property oh, so that we could shelter. have yeah well no so that we could have continuous power oh, okay, yeah. during that time and i managed even then i was skeptical of that and yeah. managed to disabuse him of that <laughs> yeah strategy. I, rem- I remember when uh what the first i guess somewhere in russia or something i hit, was super worried 12, when it clicked over midnight. 12 a.m and nothing happened i was like well if they got this handled in Siberia, we're probably okay. So, <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. He compares that as you know a typical case where as soon as the events came about, people amended. There, there was no yeah, problem, right? Exactly. And he compares that to failed end times prophecies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a, a natural comparison. Yeah. But actually I, I don't think it's all that good because his idea, what he's taking away from is – the religious ones were immune to falsification because they were imaginings and uh, we weren't thinking about them as fact. He noted that their conviction in the prophecy became stronger. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the particulars of each scenario, it's not really breaking down like that. 
Many of the people who who accepted the prophecies did significant revisions to get them in line with the facts. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had to reinterpret. They, not or... too many people were like, yep, the end came. I don't know why we feel like we're still here talking to each other, <laughs> yeah. but the world has come to an end. It was all stuff like, well, it was more of a spiritual thing. Or nice. we prayed enough that we prevented this from happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Y2K thing, that was true too. Not a lot of people who were obsessed Y2K fanatics just went, well, there was never a problem to begin with. We were wrong. They said, well, because of us raising alarm and all (laughs) of those people going in to fix the code. Mm -hmm. So I don't really think – if this is true, he's got to find better evidence for it. I mean he has some good things to say like – Look at how people on the autism spectrum do not accept religious beliefs because – and they, they tend to be much more fact-based in all of their analyses. I think that's a, a good point. I just don't feel it's enough. Right. And so I'll, I'll pay just a quick lip service to all of the things that he says are special properties of religious credence that aren't true of factual beliefs either because I don't think there's a single thing in this list that works. First of all, he Ouch. says the normative orientation of religious beliefs, that they have you – know, they are seen as having strong moral components. And he uses all of those uh, religious priming studies, how religious priming makes people less likely to cheat and uh, you know, more likely to share and be generous with others. Look how those are not like ordinary facts of the world. They immediately force us into moral thinking. Well, as Luke's pointed out, so does reading a part of the Constitution right. or talking about how you know there's people watching you. Yeah. Those are factual beliefs that have the exact same priming effects. Um, or even pictures of eyes on the wall. So factual beliefs can have normative orientation just as religious beliefs sometimes have none at all. We talked about, again, just a couple episodes ago, if you had an anthropomorphic god, you viewed violations of that god's rules as serious moral problems, whereas if you took a more theological concept, violations might just be breaking doctrinal barriers, not always really moral things. So he's got his stuff all mixed up on that. When he talks about religious beliefs come with free elaboration, I have to mention this just because I hated the example. But his (laughs) – we're getting a bean beat down today. <laughs> who who would deny that religious individuals do tend to tell a lot of stories about their gods, right? And tend to make up details. But his idea is that this free elaboration, they generate ontological posits that are not rationally entailed by the evidence or previous credences at all. What? And I think most of the time when yeah. religious people elaborate on their gods, it's for a particular reason. He uses as his sole piece of evidence – his sole piece of evidence is Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) Really up with the the modern uh, theology. Uh, Edwards says – he says, uh, There are now objects of that very same anger and wrath that God has expressed in the torments of hell. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are here now on earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are in this congregation that may be at ease or quiet – than he is with the many of those that are now in the flames of hell. And he just says, okay, so that God is more angry with the, with the parishioners than people who are already in hell? That's just made up out of nowhere. But a religious person can do that. Yeah. Um, it's not. 
Edwards accepts a very Pauline theology. I was say, this is, this is <laughs> where, coming right from the Bible. Yeah, where they flat out tell you, look, God hates you people who have been given the truth yeah. and still go on sinning Those a lukewarm lot more. people he yeah. will spit out of his mouth. He would rather have hot or cold, yeah. right? The last one he says is vulnerability to special authority. For some reason, religious propositions are special because we care more about the the moral authority of the person rather than their factual authority or something to that. He does this comparison. Imagine a scenario where uh, a church pastor who is a special authority can be fired for an extramarital affair, but it's unlikely that an expert computer systems consultant would be. Well, yeah. Because also, IT guys can't get laid. <laughs> Is but that the point? The yeah. preacher's job is to instill the, that moral code. Right. It's yeah. it's a hypocrisy thing. Mm. If somebody else was part of a nonprofit organization for monogamy or something like that and was found having a bunch of affairs, I'm pretty sure they would be fired too. Right. Uh, I don't see how this is any but special. But not necessarily if the janitor were doing yeah. it. You know, it's got to yeah. be someone whose right. role – dictates a, a certain way to behave. So I think there's an interesting idea that he has about there perhaps being two very different cognitive processes here that are layered over each other. Mm-hmm. And we ought to tease out belief more carefully. But to uh, to spell it out it as, in, in, as in concrete a system as he's done, I just don't think it follows. Mm-hmm. What's a shame to me is there's a much more interesting article in the exact same journal, Cognition, in the exact same month that deals with these themes, it was also inspired by the paradox of fiction and it gives some really, I think, interesting results that are much more grounded in empirical data that I don't think is going to get as much attention from people like us because it doesn't have as provocative of a headline. The article is Daniela Shidlovsky. Uh, from Hebrew University. This is her uh, PhD thesis, actually. The title of this article is, If I Imagine It, Then It Happened. (laughs) The Implicit Truth Value of Imaginary Representations. She differentiates between explicit truth value, so our ordinary means of judging something rationally, using our background information to assess the credibility of a claim. Mm -hmm. And then implicit truth value, she says, is one of those one of those other systems, you know, the kind of uh, spontaneous, automatic, unconscious gauging of truth. The basic idea, and this has been borne out by other experiments, when uncertainty exists regarding the explicit truth value of an event or a fact or something, we tend to rely on cues that are outside of the content of the belief in question, such as how vivid an image can we form of it. Hmm. What perspective is it coming from? Is it from a first-person perspective or a third? That these all influence our judgments of truth when we have nothing better to rely on. That's been pretty well established by other uh, research. Her question was, can non-content cues, in this case imagination, influence your truth evaluation even when you know the proposition is false? And so what they did is – it was a rather ingenious setup, I thought. To measure this uh, intrinsic truth value of a belief, what they did was an autobiographical implicit association test. So this is basically just getting you to tell different uh, stories and maybe things that were true of you and things that were false. And they look at your response time to different cues. We've seen this before. For example, um, 
uh, with some of these racism, implicit racism tests years ago. We talked about Alan Alda, who I don't think of as a particularly racist guy. No, you know. he's a good uh, open-minded feminist. Yeah, guy. he's he's a hardcore activist. Oh, that's what it was. It was feminism. Yeah. And he took the implicit association test. Basically, by looking at his reaction times to a bunch of questions, they could tell that implicitly he still had some sexist biases underneath. Mm-hmm. Right. We would say his explicit uh, truth value of sexist propositions would be that they're false. Right. But implicitly, we can tell that his brain is having a harder time disentangling the truth from, from these, these uh, sexist stereotypes. So uh, like kind of a dispositional – you know, some think maybe this is just tracking like we're aware of cultural stereotypes. Right. This research suggests it might be a little bit uh, deeper down, but they used the same basic approach. They used a similar test of reaction time to gauge what somebody's implicit truth value of a situation was. Then they had them do two basic experiments. Um, I'm going to be cutting out a lot of detail here because I don't think it's relevant, but – I was very impressed with how well controlled this was and how well they thought of other interpretations and tried to tried to uh, control for them. Imagine pulling this, the seven of clubs from a deck of cards or they are given a, uh, a circle to color. Do they color it blue or did they color it red? Anyways, when they matched up, when they actually did the experiments, the people who were told, instructed to vividly imagine coloring in the circle. Mm-hmm or to vividly imagine pulling the card. Slightly less than half of the respondents accidentally did misidentify their imaginings as real memories. So right there, right there, it's Mm. uh, just vividly imagining something does seem to make it pretty true to your mind. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is even of the group that said no, explicitly this never happened. This implicitly, they had that same confusion that slower reaction time as if even though rationally they knew this had never happened, but that implicit truth value underlying it had a hard time accepting that. Hmm. So their mind was still operating somewhere deep down on a level that thought it could kind of be true or they had a harder time overcoming the idea that it wasn't true. This was across the board for the people who knew that these were just memories and what was even more interesting is you could kind of – you could modify that. You could do things that would not modify your explicit truth value of any statement. That would remain the same but would make your you know, implicit truth value increase to a significant degree. And one of those things was imagine it from a first-person perspective or imagine this, somebody else is coloring in the square. The conclusion was we often are deceived by our imaginations into mistaking these things as real. But even when we aren't, that activity still goes on. So you can imagine, especially in contexts where we can't go out and verify the explicit truth value through ordinary means, what do you think is going to call the shots cognitively? The vividness of our imaginations. Mm. Let's think of all the things we've discussed on the show. Our interview with Tanya Lerman, where the charismatic believers that she was embedded with actively practiced every day. In fact, they found that a remedy to lack of faith, constantly imagine that they're talking to God, Mm -hmm. that they're sitting across from God and having a cup of coffee. Oh, pour a cup of coffee for him. Let him have a seat at the table. How hard is it then for these people, even when they're given factual evidence to the contrary, 
to disabuse themselves of what they have so ingrained through their imaginative capacity. I don't know. I personally thought that was a way more compelling Sounds article really and got really to the heart of the matter. But we're going to post links to both of those articles. Uh, one of them is behind a paywall, unfortunately. But if Ooh. you have university access – The good one or the, the bad one? The bad one, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, I'd be interested in hearing what listeners have to say. I wonder what the good doctor professor would say about this. Mm-hmm. All right. Time for some polyatheism? Let's do it. This time in polyatheism, we conclude our look at the great Celtic hero, Cuchulain, with his greatest triumph and untimely death. Now, when Hollywood finally gets off its collective lazy ass and finally gets around to making the big-budget Cuchulain film, this is your cold open, okay? Northern Ireland, Ulster, long ago in the time when gods roamed the earth freely. We see the cottage of a farmer in the early evening. The farmer enters his home after a long day of growing potatoes or whatever (laughs) and finds, much to his surprise, a beautiful woman in his house. She's cleaned up the place and is setting a hot meal on the table for him. What's all this? The stunned farmer asks. The beautiful woman replies, I am the goddess Mocha, and I'm going to live with you and be your wife. All right, then, says the farmer. Sometime later, the farmer is speaking to a now very pregnant-looking Mocha, and he asks her if she's sure she doesn't want to go into town with him for the big festival. I can't, she says. And furthermore, you are to tell no one about me, about us, and about our wee buns in the oven. Yes, yes, says the farmer. He's heard all this before. Oh, my God, they're expecting twins. Yeah, twins. Still... I wish we didn't have to hide our love, blah, 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 blah. Off the farmer goes to the big festival. All manner of medieval nonsense goes on at the festival, and everyone is there, including the king. The farmer enjoys himself, maybe has a few drinks, watches the games, and then the main event is a horse race wherein the king's horses blow away the competition. There ain't nothing faster than the king's horses, a man sitting next to the farmer reacts. Bah, says the farmer, my wife is twice as fast as the king's horses. And then he realizes his mistake. Whoops, he's realized he wasn't supposed to say anything about her, but Wait, it's too late. He's Irish. He could just back up and be like, I was drunk. That was stupid, right? They all are, though. So oh, it doesn't, yeah, it's okay. indefensible oh, here. Damn. So the king Context has heard dependent. of this, and he says, you think your wife can outrun my horses? Bring her here and prove it. The farmer protests, but the king is insistent, and he sends a messenger to Mocha uh, with the message that if she doesn't make an appearance, her husband is as good as dead. But my belief in my wife is like a religious belief. It's not like real. (laughs) Right. Uh, Mocha, none too happy about having to haul her massively pregnant belly into town, arrives at the festival where she is told that in order to save her husband, she must race the king's horses. She protests, appealing to the mercy of the crowd, saying, Each of you had a mother. Will you not show me some mercy and at least wait until I've given birth to my children before forcing me to race? But it falls on deaf ears. Nine months pregnant with twins, Mocha is forced to race the king's horses. And miracle of miracles, she succeeds. The horses eat her dust. But then tragedy The moment she crosses the finish line, she turns around, falls to the ground, and in great pain, gives birth to twins. (laughs) 
Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> As this happens, she screams in pain and curses the entire audience, saying, Because you would not show me mercy, I curse each of you for nine times nine generations. Whensoever Ulster is under attack, the men shall fall upon the ground with the pains of childbirth and leave Ulster undefended. Ooh. I would not have, like, the ability to say that much, like... Right, as that just, happened just shot out two kids, <laughs> a couple of placenta, yeah. As her voice echoes over the stunned crowd, we do a smash cut to the title card, Cahoolin, the hero of Ulster. Now, years later, <laughs> a greedy queen named Mev uh, gets upset because her husband was one cow richer than she was. She could not let that stand, so she sent her men to steal for her a very special cow, the Brown Bull of Cooley. Cooley is, of course, located in Ulster, the home of our hero, Cahoolan. Mev mounts an armed force to take the Brown Bull, and in doing so, she triggers the ancient curse of Mocha. All the men of Ulster become helpless, rolling on the floor as if they were in labor. The only man unaffected by this curse is Cahoolan himself. Why? Why is Cahoolan exempt from the curse of Mocha? Well, some cite the fact that he was the son of the god Lu, but the more compelling argument, I think, we can all agree, is that Cahoolan does not technically qualify as a man because he does not have a beard. Oh, wow. Which is obviously the true mark of one's manhood. Yeah, true. <laughs> He said, to a room full of beards. Cahoolan successfully defends Ulster against wave after wave of Mev's forces, first striking down hundreds at a time and then facing single combat against some of her greatest warriors. At one point, Cahoolan must face his own best friend, and another, he has to paint a fake beard on. I'm not sure why. At one point, he falls asleep, and some men slip by and slaughter all of the children of Ulster. Oh, yeah, whatever. The cow is what's important. I guess he was pretty uh, pissed off when he woke yeah. up. Oh, rude awakening. Um, he faces a druid wizard and his 90 sons who all act as a single entity. Now, that's that's, that's kind of cool. Really. That's so cool. I'm not sure if this is accurate, but I picture it like cartoon bees. Yeah. They'll form a big fist and stuff. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's totally. it, but awesome. Somehow, um, in the midst of all of this, uh, Mev's men manage to sneak past and get the brown bowl of coolie. They bring it back to her home, stick it in a pen with her husband's most prized cow, the white bull of Connacht. Long story short, the two bulls kill each other. And thus, this entire foray proves fruitless and needlessly devastating to the population of both Ulster and Connacht. Don't worry. Years later, Mev is killed when her nephew hits her in the head with a piece of cheese. If that makes you feel any better about <laughs> That's the whole awesome. thing. <laughs> That's my favorite. Uh, this whole cattle raid is significant not only for the mayhem and heroism, but because events here will lead to the eventual death of Cahoolan. One of the warriors he killed during the cattle raid had a handful of children, and when their father was killed, Mev scooped up the kids and shipped them off to Hogwarts, where they could train to become powerful sorcerers. Whoa. Right? That's a cool crossover. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not explicitly Hogwarts, but let's Aww. read between the lines here, folks. So years later, they return and try to prod Cahoolan into a battle. But 
he has no reason to fight them. He killed their father during a war, but he has no beef with the kids, and he's already caused them enough trouble by killing their dad, so he refuses. And so they provoke him. First, they curse him with the sounds of war, which follow him around wherever he goes. He becomes like a human boombox, emitting a loop of swords clashing, people screaming, <laughs> hooves stomping, whatever kinds of things you'd hear That's in warfare. Obnoxious. Yeah. So the people around Cahulin are being driven mad by this sound. So what they do, brilliant solution, they send him down the road to live with the village of deaf people. Nice. Now, why the deaf people need their own village, I guess they were too much trouble <laughs> living with everyone else, but whatever. So problem solved. Next, they curse him with the sights of war. So everywhere he looks, he's surrounded by imagined enemies, blades of grass become swords, and so on and so forth. Finally, this brood of Slytherin psychopaths disguise themselves as Cahulin's mistress and convince him to go into battle against them. Now, on his way into battle, there's all sorts of bad signs. First, his drink turns to blood in his hands. His horse cries blood. Um, his weapons fall off the wall. And most Irish of them all, a poet threatens to satirize him. <laughs> he deals with that situation by spearing both the poet and the nine men standing behind said poets. <laughs> Lesson of the day, never line up behind a poet. <laughs> now, Cahulin's biggest problem, however, comes from his own magical rules or geish. The, the rules are, one, anytime he passes a house where someone is cooking, he has to stop and share their meal. Not so bad, right? And two, he can never eat dog. Lo and behold, amazingly, for the first time in his life, he passes by a house where three old women are cooking a delicious dinner of, you guessed it, dog. Oh, what happens under these circumstances? Well, he tries to just kind of skirt the rules and just nibble on a little piece of the dog, but it's enough to... Uh, You're going to say like the whole world kind of collapsed into <laughs> a paradox and... <laughs> Yes. There goes Ulster. It's like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Um, no, he, he just nibbles on a little bit of dog shoulder, and that's enough to uh, suck away some of his powers. Mm, dog now, shoulder. <laughs> now, once in combat with the wizard kids, he's struck by a spear which rips open his abdomen. As logic would dictate, he scoops up the entrails and heads to the river to wash them off because the <laughs> last thing you want is a dirty small intestine. Am I right? Yeah. As he's doing this, an otter comes by and licks up some of the blood. Cahulin, who's a bit short on patience and has no time for this nonsense, crushes the otter with a handy rock. This may not seem like a big deal. Unless you're an animal rights activist. Well, of course. PETA is enraged. <laughs> uh, there's a long-standing prophecy that says Cahulin will begin with the death of a dog and end with the death of a dog. Now, if you remember a couple episodes back, he gained his name, Cahulin, the Hound of Hulin, by killing a dog. And now he's killed an otter, or, as the Celts called them, a water dog. What? Huh? Didn't see that twist coming. So, I, well, that makes sense. Right? They're, they're dog-ish. Yeah, mammals. Sure. So, Cahulin knows it's game over, but he refuses to just lay down and die. He's got that fighting Irish spirit. So he straps himself to a boulder so that he can remain standing up and keep fighting right up until his final breath. 
which of course comes when a raven, the symbol of the death goddess Morgan, lands on his shoulder and Cahulin is no more. Hmm. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen, the thrilling conclusion of the story of the great Celtic hero Cahulin. Just one more son of a god who died to save his people worth not believing in. Tune in next time for the first of our 12-part series on Hercules. (laughs) No, just kidding. Now Uh, we're going to get a lot of emails saying, (laughs) you need to do that, Dave. So what did we all learn (laughs) from Um, this? Well, you know what the moral of the cattle raid of Cooley is, where Mev sends all of her men into battle? The stated moral within the story is uh, one of her soldiers says, we followed the rump of a misguided woman. It is the usual thing for a flock led by a mare to be strayed and destroyed. <laughs> so the moral is don't, don't listen to a yeah. woman. I was going to say don't chase tail of, yeah. uh, unless so, there's some sort of authority on things. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's the moral there. Yeah. Um, let's end on a positive note though, shall we? Yeah. A props list, a, a surprising group is making our props list here. The National Association of Evangelicals. What? The NAE, um, who we have our issues with, of course, Mm -hmm. is actually doing something good right now. And one of the things they are – they had a resolution recently Mm -hmm. to combat the dangers of predatory lending Hmm. and called on churches, lenders, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau – to do their part in addressing debt traps that imprison poor and vulnerable consumers now, this, since from their own website. Typically very progressive in their politics, what's, what is it about Christianity that would make them against predatory lending? Like I'm assuming this is a religious rationale. For of course. This. Well, their president, uh, Leith Anderson, says, quote, The Bible speaks strongly against unjust lending and taking advantage of the poor. Uh, usury. Exactly, yep. right? Um, he says, quote, yeah. We were stunned to learn that short-term high-interest loans with annual interest and fees may exceed 300 percent in some mm-hmm. states. There are many states where there are no limits set on uh, mm. this kind of lending. And you've all seen these stores, you know, get cash now. Yeah. Um, but they charge exorbitant yeah. I'm rates. I'm sure John Oliver did a, a nice yeah. segment on Excellent. that. Yeah, he segment did actually. Which if you don't watch that show, yeah, you what are you doing? Last week, tonight? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. amazing. Very good. So uh, – Good on the NAE for taking yeah, on an, yeah. an actual important cause. And yeah, usually they focus on sexual sins. Mm-hmm. I would like it if they focused on more of the economic ones in because the Bible. Because we can agree yeah. on a lot of financial justice issues uh, with the NAE as opposed to some of their, yeah. their uh, sexual things. So yeah, they because the poor are vulnerable, they are the ones targeted by these groups and it becomes this cycle of debt. So yeah. – Good on the NAE for combating yeah. it. Way to go, guys. Cool. And that's going to do it for us today. Um, we'll be back soon. In the meantime, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Uh, comment on our blog at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Again, we really appreciate all those donations that are coming in. And uh, feel free to support the show by sharing it, posting uh, reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, and so on and so forth. And tell your grandmothers about tell us. Tell your grandma. Yeah. Have her skip the blowjob episode, but uh, <laughs> well, who knows? 
whatever your grandma's into. So uh, we'll be back soon <laughs> with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.